I mean, that's the thing. The longer there is division between the family, the longer the eating disorder owns my daughter. Welcome to the Juggling the Chaos of Recovery podcast, where we focus on health and wellness and overcoming all types of addictions. You're in the right place if you're a mom, dad, sibling, or caregiver who has a loved one who is or was struggling with an eating disorder or any other kind of addiction. In a time where everything seems heavy, I'm here to bring you a very real yet lighthearted take on what the heck we're all supposed to do with our lives while we care for our loved ones who are struggling. One thing holds true throughout it all. You can't juggle the chaos without smiling, at least a little bit. Well, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Moira Gorski. So glad that you are coming back today. And you know, within my um, within my journey of life and through this chaos of recovery, as I call it with my podcast and having a loved one who is um, dealing with a life-threatening mental condition, I have met many people. And often you'll hear the interviews that I do here are from those that have had a struggle, who have wonderfully recovered and gone on to live a great life. Some have gone on to help others with their uh, business or their practice. And um, I haven't done too many interviews with a mom similar to me, who's been through a very similar situation with a, um, again, became, took on that role of a caretaker um, of their loved one with a life-threatening mental condition. And so I'm really thrilled today to bring you Ashley Nelson, who is again a mom, but she's also gone, she has gone through, she, we have walked similar steps, walked similar paths, and um, she has gone on to found a company uh, based on what she learned along this journey. And so we're going to talk all about that today, um, but just let's start out by welcoming Ashley Nelson. I'm so glad that you're here with me today, Ashley. Well, thank you, Moira. I'm really grateful and honored to be here, so thanks. Yeah. Yeah, you are welcome. And uh, yeah, I've been grateful that we have, um, that I've been introduced to you and really look forward to um, the listeners hearing what um, you have to say and how we can have a conversation here today. And like I mentioned, we have similar stories and that we have daughters who have gone through a struggle with an eating disorder. And um, so I just would like to, and again, we're going to, I tell when I talk with moms or I talk with others I let my, I'm going to let my daughter share her story someday. And so today we're just going to talk about, again, what it's like to be a mom in that position. And so I'd love for you to start by just, again, sharing that as a mom, kind of how this began. And let's talk a little bit about that experience for you. Sure. Well, it began when my daughter was 12 and she's now 22 and um, she is an amazing, amazing individual and human being, uh, always, you know, really driven, um, and just well liked by everyone. And when she was 12 years old, she started to, um, well, pay a lot of attention to food and where it came from. And it, uh, was under the guise, at least initially, of science and a unit at school, uh, that she was taking, on where food comes from and um, local eating local versus not and you know all that kind of stuff and in the beginning we thought it was a healthy interest in food 
And it quickly turned, uh, very quickly, into something very unhealthy and very scary. And she uh, was diagnosed with anorexia. You know, how did it start? <laughs> uh, it just, it started with her paying attention to labels and saying that, you know, I don't want to eat anything out of a box at first. At first it was, I just want to eat real food. And we thought, okay, well, well, we can support that. That's a great, great way to be. And it grew from, well, I want to eat real food, but I'm not going to eat meat and watching a lot of documentaries on, you know, how animals are treated. And we thought, okay, I mean, that's not, that's not out of the realm either. I mean, it's, it's certainly healthy and, and we don't have any issue with you not eating meat. But slowly the restriction became more and more prevalent and she limited um, almost everything basically um, until, um, until really all food you know, scared her and there was a reason that she wasn't going to eat it and she quickly quickly dropped 20, maybe 30 pounds back then. Um, and she did not, she had been a competitive gymnast and did not have 20 pounds to lose. Interestingly enough, we took her to our pediatrician who did not diagnose it as an eating disorder right away. She diagnosed it as anxiety issues. And um, my daughter was complaining a lot about how her stomach felt. So we took her to a gastro guy and, you know, all these doctors. and lo and behold, it was and is anorexia. So that's how it started. And it, uh, it grew and it, it grew into um, something that consumed her life and consumed our life and um, our other daughter's life. We have two children, two, two daughters. And um, maybe I'll just pause there for now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you, um, you guys are very, Similar story again from who you know other stories that I've heard and um, and albeit like you said being concerned about where our food comes from and how are the animals are treated and things like that there is nothing wrong with any of that but the fact that it then takes it takes on a life of its own too um, mm-hmm. uh, with that anxiety and and whatnot and I mean I guess as a mom because I again remember those days as it started with my daughter did you have I mean, any idea if you had any you had experience with eating disorders in your past? I mean, we didn't. I mean, there there wasn't anyone in our immediate family that we were aware of that had an eating disorder. So this was a new thing. I, you know, I will say there are people in our family or in our extended family that have struggled with anxiety. There are some people that I've been made aware of in the extended family that have struggled with addictions. Um, and so, and, and, you know, science does tell us that, um, that this, this does have a genetic component, component to it. But there wasn't anyone that we were aware of that struggled with anorexia or had any kind of a full-fledged eating disorder. Um, it does take on a life of its own, and it is a really sinister, really dark illness that, uh, really consumes everyone in the family. It's not. It's not just about the person struggling with the with the illness, and it is an illness too. I think that I thought maybe it was a choice 
I thought, oh, you can just choose to eat or you can choose to not eat. And I learned a lot about that, that it, you know, when it is a full-fledged eating disorder and mental illness, it, it isn't a choice for these people. Um, it's an illness. And we um, took her to all kinds of doctors around for Chicago, you know, all the various programs in Chicago. And ultimately, years later, landed on a program in Denver, uh, the Eating Recovery Center, that after years of um, working with different doctors and different programs in the Chicago area, that program in Denver was really, um, I feel, the first time that um, she started to heal and started to recover. And it was, it was many years. She went to Denver for the first time. She went twice. She went to Denver for the first time when she was 17. So it was, you know, five years after the onset. Yeah. And, and uh, I just remember when this first started for my daughter and we were in a uh, facility here in the Chicagoland area. And I heard a mom talking about, you know, when, uh, that she was looking for the next place and her daughter had been at 10 different facilities and said, going on for five years. And I was like, how can that happen? I mean, like, that's just crazy, right? And here I am six years later and um, uh, ERC has been a good, a very good support for my daughter. She's been to Denver twice and um, to Chicago once. And, um, and although it's been supportive, I must say that a place that was in California that she was most recently at um, and we'll be going back to is like, just like you said, the first place I believe that she is really starting to heal. And actually they're saying, you know, she's saying that it's kicking her butt. I'm like, good. Right. <laughs> that's what we, that's what we want. Um, and again, it just, it is an illness. It's not a choice. And I think those are really um, good words to get out there for people to hear. I know that I, as a mom, again, I reflect back to those times and, you know, I had found her a therapist and um, uh, my niece suggested we find her a dietitian or a nutritionist of some kind. And, and so we were doing that. And I was like, we're going to be able to handle this, right? This isn't so bad. And, and I just, I still remember that day. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts of when you took that step to get her that help at a eating, you know, like some place to help with her specifically eating disorder or more than a therapist, because I remember picking her up. I had gotten a call from the therapist and she said, I think you need to come get your daughter. Cause of course my daughter was doing everything on her own, very independent. I can go to therapy, all of that. And she was in the next town over and the therapist said it was, a, it was a tremendously difficult session and your daughter's very dysregulated and I think you should come pick her up. And then, you know, and so I did and I picked her up and got her in the car. And I remember saying to her, you know, this has got to be really scary for you and like really frustrating because you are so smart and it's like it's like you can't figure this out and I can't figure it out either and maybe it's time that we get some help mm -hmm. and you know and it was it was I was just like I don't know I didn't expect to get there like oh come on we can handle this ourselves we're strong women we can mm -hmm. but like it came to a point where I'm like we need something we need some different type of help here yeah, I um, I do remember many different points. Um, first of all, uh, it's funny that you say one of the families or moms that you met at one of the facilities, they were five or six years in, 
and you thought to yourself, what, five, six years? You know, there's no way it's going to take that long. We felt the exact same way. When we first di- when she was first diagnosed, we went down to University of Chicago um, Med Center at the time uh, had an eating disorder clinic. And I had done a bunch of research online and found um, something called the Maudsley Method, the Maudsley Method, which is now also known as FBT, family-based therapy. Mm -hmm. But what family-based therapy is, or the Maudsley Method is, is the parents and the family are, um, uh, have been identified as sort of the the, uh, person's best hope for recovery. Um, more so than taking her out of the family and into another unit that the family is really the source of of making sure she eats and all that stuff. So we became basically her doctors and food was the medicine. Mm-hmm. And so we would sit down and eat and monitor every single meal with her. And the meals were uh, high, high calorie, high fat content because she needed to gain so much weight. They actually call it the refeeding stage. So um, we became the doctors during the refeeding stage. And um, I remember at the time asking, okay, well, you know, how long are we going to need to do this? Three meals a day, multiple snacks a day. We monitor every single meal that she eats. We sit with her um, we try to make it pleasant, although I will say it is so unpleasant. And it's also so unpleasant because, you know, for her at the time, I mean, food was her worst enemy. And so um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of fighting, a lot of ver- verbal fighting, you know, I mean, a lot of resistance, a lot of anger, a lot of tears. Um, and it gets exhausting, absolutely exhausting. However, once we got into the cycle and we kind of knew what we were doing, I thought, okay, a year of this Maudsley method and, you know, she'll be back on track. And here we are now 10 years later. She's 22 years old. She's been to Eating Recovery Center in Denver twice for three months each time. She's been to um, another clinic in Chicago for depression and anxiety um, and was there for three months. Um, she's been in partial hospitalization programs for years, um, IOP programs for years. So it's uh, it's a real illness. And I do remember our first time at ERC when she was 17. We had decided to take her there because, first of all, it had been five years and we were absolutely exhausted and the family dynamics had gotten so challenging because really, you know, what, what, what parent when these kids are 14, 15, 16 wants to become a food police? I mean, that's, that's not the relationship we're looking for with our kids. Uh, and so it really, the, the whole relationship, there was so much stress on the whole relationship. And finally, one of her um, therapists at the IOP or PHP program she was in at the time said, I really believe that she needs a higher level of care. And um, she herself was not ready to go, but we just knew that five years in, we needed to do something different and something that was much more immersive and all-encompassing and that maybe that was our, our, our biggest hope for recovery. So um, these beds do not come available 
often. And at the time, ERC was pretty, uh, pretty sold out. And so when a bed opened um, the following week, we found out, I think, at five o'clock on a particular weekday. And she was on a 6 a.m. plane the next morning in order to, to, to fill that bed and take the spot because otherwise it's, you know, the, the waiting list is long. Right. Um, and even today, I mean, today, like, you know, seven months into this pandemic, you know, the, the, the beds are still full. You know, we've dealt with that with our daughter recently. And, um, yeah. you know, I want to talk about that family dynamic because there is no doubt that it has, this is not just one person that has something and it impacts the whole family. And uh, I know it has ours. And I know that's something that I just wish d- it didn't. And we're still in the midst of trying to navigate our way through. And we have four children. And um, so, and I don't know, let's talk a little bit about that or like how it's impacted them or how you've, how, yeah, we don't, don't always want to talk about the negative stuff here, but just the reality of that. But also, how have you as a family um, kind of gotten through this? We're still getting through it. Yeah. <laughs> We're still healing. It's, uh, it's very, very difficult. And, um, you know, prior to this illness, I would have categorized us as a really happy, loving family. Um, but this illness is, um, it's just quite uh, sinister and dark and invasive. And, um, you know, things that have never really been present in my daughter started to be present, you know, lying about anything related to food, lying about all sorts of things, um, you know, taking food and saying she ate it for lunch when she really gave it to the homeless guy on the street outside of her high school in Chicago. I don't know. I mean, I just, the list could go on and on and I'd, I'd probably rather not, but it's, um, I think what happens too, if I can just interject is because I've seen that and then the other kids see that and it's not, and it's not, um, it's just not like, it's just not normal. And so the other kids see it and then they're like, why is she getting away with that? Why is she manipulating? Why is she lying? And, and mom, and mom, you know, mom's trying to do this. And like, there's all of this, like, and I think what happens, well, I know what happened, you know, the kids retreat or they get verbal or they start to have, they start to, I've heard from some of my kids, like they feel like, okay, she's messed up. He's messed up. So I messed up. Mm -hmm. Right. And they see that. And there's just, yeah, the list could go on. I mean, there's, there's stressors. My husband and I walked into therapy a couple of weeks ago after six years of this, we need to get back to, you know, we got to talk through some things because it's been difficult on our, our relationship. And, you know, there's kids that are in the home, kids that are living outside of the home. And so it doesn't impact them as much or whatever, but it just, it's this, it's a family dynamic that I, you know, disruptor for sure. It's a disruptor. And, you know, each person while you're, you might be told by the doctors and by the therapists to handle it a certain way each person sometimes starts to think that, okay, well, 
maybe the way I could handle it is this, you know, maybe some tough love about just eat it, you know, or maybe some really soft, mushy love about how are you feeling right now? And, mm-hmm. you know, but what happens is as, as partners, husbands and wives or sisters and brothers, you, the illness almost starts to come between you. You know, one of you wants to handle it one way. The other thinks that that's not right or the doctors are saying something else or you've interpreted something another way and you want to handle it another way. Then all of a sudden there's not unity on that front. And the illness, the eating disorder sees that, you know, the more it can sort of wedge itself between different people in the family, the longer it gets to live. I mean, that's the thing. The longer there is division between the family, the longer the eating disorder owns my daughter. Mm -hmm. And so I remember we were at ERC for one of our first sort of immersions in getting educated about all of this. And they put up a chart of typical recovery ages and how, what the recovery rates, rates are if you've had the illness for one year, if you've had the illness for four years, if you've had the illness longer than you know, 10 years or whatever it is. And of course, with each year that the illness still has ownership of you, it's, it's really changing your brain. It's completely changing your neural pathways and your brain. And it's very hard to retrain the brain to do something else when this particular mental health issue has grabbed hold. So we were at ERC and one of the charts uh, said that, you know, typical recoveries start between the, from the age of 25 or after. And now Marley was 12 at the time. Well, no, 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 no. I take that. It started when she was 12, but we were at ERC when she was 17. And I just looked at my husband and I was like, we cannot handle another five, six years of this. We're already five years in. Um, I will say the first time we took her to ERC, it was so emotional and it was really hard. You know, number one, you, you, you want to be able to soothe and heal and help your kids recover. But this illness is bigger than than me or than us. And it's bigger than what we are capable of, of being able to handle. That first night that she was at ERC in Denver, we stayed for the weekend for three or four days afterwards. It was the first night in five years that I think I got a decent night rest. And mm-hmm. that whole weekend, we were exhausted. I mean, we, we kept sleeping like 12 hours every, it was the first time that we felt like, okay, you know, we, we, we release. Well, you gave, you gave the, um, authority to someone else to be that food police, to be that whatever. I remember a friend of mine said the same thing. She, um, said when I dropped my daughter off to a particular, she said, now go take care of yourself. Well, and that's what we did that whole weekend. I mean, we were there for three or four days. It was the first time we had had dinner or lunch in five years 
that the topic of the meal was not consumed by someone with an eating disorder. It was the first time that we, I mean, our life had become so small because mm -hmm. we've been trying to follow these doctor's rules or about, you know, this Maudsley method. And we were trying to do it all as best we can. And our, our life became so small. I mean, we just, we stopped going out to dinners for meals with friends. We stopped socializing. We just, we were so exhausted mm -hmm. by, you know, sitting at the dinner table for sometimes four hours to get her to finish a meal. Sometimes four hours, she would cut up her food in these tiny, 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 tiny little bites. And, and I mean, and this is, I mean, you know, can you imagine? I mean, there's no. another child in the house. Too. I know. I know. You got things, you got things to do. I mean, come on. You got laundry and homework and, you know, walking the dogs. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's transition into again, what you, because I know that you shared with me um, that you started to really become aware of what perhaps might help your daughter, but in the end, it really helped you in this idea of, um, again, mindfulness, stress reduction, yoga, things like that. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the brain and the neuro, because I believe that that's a part of treatment that just isn't there, that the rewiring of the brain and the thoughts and things like that, that um, can really be accomplished when we talk about mindfulness and meditation yeah. and things like that. So let's go and talk about that. Well, I have been a um, dedicated yogi for probably 20, 20 years, 20 years or so. And um, I started to really deepen my yoga practice um, when my oldest daughter was first born. And I coincidentally was going through a teacher training to get certified um, when she was diagnosed with her anorexia. And um, as she tra as we traveled this journey and she met with different therapists and we were in different programs at University of Chicago and other places in the city, I was hearing and watching that much of the treatment and much of many of the practices were mindfulness-based practices. And at the time, I had a very deep and dedicated yoga practice. I also had a very deep and dedicated meditation practice. But I would say to Marley, and I would ask the therapist, so what exactly do you mean by mindfulness practices? I mean, at the time, I kind of thought meditation is mindfulness, right? Which it is. It's a gateway into mindfulness. But there are other mindfulness-based practices um, that you can integrate into life that work on a cognitive level um, in addition to meditation and that really can sort of retrain the brain um, in some ways. So I, I dove into a curriculum called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction that I learned of as I was researching some of this, these mindfulness-based practices. I came across a guy by the name of John Kabat-Zinn who um, in the 1970s basically founded, created, and founded a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction that he integrated into hospital settings for patients with chronic illnesses and addictions. And so I thought, huh, what is this Mindfulness-Based Stress Re Reduction? It's also called as an acronym sometimes, MBSR. And so I thought I would go to a class 
thinking that when I went to that class, I would come away with some practices that could help my daughter. And I went to the class, it was an eight week class, and I really found that the whole class is dedicated to changing your relationship with the stressors in your life through a variety of mixed modality practices. Some of them are meditation and other practices as well. And what I really found is that this class helped me. We were in the height of managing this eating disorder. And it really helped me find ways to take care of myself in a way that I had not previously been doing. It helped me find ways to communicate more effectively with my kids, with my husband. And all of this translated into showing up with more presence and more calm and more equanimity at work as well. So there was just this huge unlock in every area of my life when you learn to change your relationship with stress and with the stressors in your life. You know, you can't make the stressors go away, but you can manage your relationship differently with them. You can manage the level with which these stressors consume you. You can increase the, the pause that exists between stimulus and response, right? So that's what MBSR, mindfulness-based practices, helped me do. And it really was transformative uh, for my own health, my own well-being, and my own effectiveness. And so I thought to myself, huh, there is really something here. So then I spent really the last 10 years continuing to train and learn and get certified in different curriculums and you know, peel back the onion and the layers more and more and more on how these practices can support us and serve us, how, can, how they can support us in our home life, how they can support us in, in our corporate life. I was, at the time, I was in corporate America, and I had a senior leadership role for, in, a, in a large Fortune 500 uh, company. And, um, and I started just offering workshops just organically to my team, to other teams, and uh, the word kind of spread. And People inside the organization were asking me to do more and more things. And I thought to myself, this is what I really want to dedicate my life to. This is, this has helped me so much. And it's really changed, I feel like, who I am and how I show up in the world and, and my own levels of, of peace and, and contentment, even amidst the chaos and even amidst the disruption, um, finding that, that, that peace. So I um, took a while, but I finally left corporate America and I launched an organization that is dedicated to bringing mindfulness-based programming into corporations, nonprofits, government institutions, um, educational institutions in our community. And so we work with individuals. We also design and deliver large-scale programs, and I absolutely love it. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's awesome, and let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, I mean, I just... <laughs> Again, I when I think of my own experience, and um, I mean, again, I'm I'm so grateful that I met you because I am, you know, halfway through the mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, program now that you are running, um, and I can agree with everything that you're saying that it because I've done a good deal myself by the by thankfully with some friends who you know, said some things a few years ago and said, you know, you need to start taking care of yourself or why don't you come to this thing that we're doing that a friend of mine's doing that's some energy clearing or it's meditation or it's whatever. And I just, again, there's no coincidences. I started to delve into that. I started to go to 
Um, I just, I just chuckle when someone says, well, I just thought I'd do this because it would be helpful for my child. I mean, I did the same thing with a, with a personal development, life development type of course called Pathways for a Successful Living. Someone introduced it. They said, oh, this would be helpful for your son. Um, I, I sold him on it. They said, why don't you come too? Because, you know, then you'll both be speaking the same language in your house. Great, I'll be there. Well, it wasn't really anything for him. <laughs> By the end of the first um, afternoon, evening, he decided he didn't want to be there. And uh, so in the morning, um, he didn't want to be there. And I sent him home and I walked back into that room and I quickly learned that, oh, this is for me. This is what I'm learning. This is what, and I was learning that I had, that I didn't ask for help. And that I just want to do things on my own. And it was very difficult for me, especially when I was um, under stress or upset. It was hard for me to ask for help. Yeah. Um, and so as I've gone through those different courses and done, done different things, very similarly, I found I showed up differently. And I've had to pull back to say, okay, you take care of yourself. You get the help. I, I got to do this for me. And when we show up differently, it's... It's a great thing. And then I love what I'm learning in the mindfulness-based stress reduction is that when the stresses come, we've, I'm figuring out more and more just different ways to, I guess, deal with that or to manage that, that that stressor isn't having such an impact. I've got some tools, um, different tools so that I can, because that stressor isn't necessarily going to go away, right? But we know how we can handle it differently. and. Um, Again, it would be nothing that I would have expected because I'm like, you know, I'm a helper and I'm a nurse and I can help everybody. And that's what I want to do. And I realized that I needed to help myself. And that's so similar to what you found yourself. You needed to help yourself, you know, and kind of let go of that control. That's where the unlock is, you know, because I mean, when you're, when you're, you're dealing with something that is out of your control, um, you know, just, just learning to tap into ways, practices that can support you getting comfortable with uncertainty, getting comfortable with um, not controlling, you know, not, not having any idea what the outcome will be. Yeah. I mean, it's a scary place to sit in. You know, if people are hearing that, they're like, yeah, but I want to, yeah, we all want to know. I wish I would, I, you know, I wish I would know when my daughter will be um, through all of this or when um, finances will be better or when, you know, this will be better or whatever, but we just don't know. And, you know, the part that we're talking about now this week is stress. And I know from, a, you know, from my personal experience, that stress not only, again, makes us a little, you know, we're just, we're edgy and stuff like that, but it really impacts our health. I mean, I was having trouble with my adrenals and with some other health issues because of the stress around me. And yeah. it can take, it can take us down. That's but, exactly right. You know, I mean, stress and long-term stress, chronic or acute stress has a serious physiological impact on your body. I mean, we, we, we hold stress in the body and um, these mindfulness-based practices physiologically uh, really improve your cardiovascular health, your immune health. Um, it literally, they literally change the structure of your brain and take you out of this reactive 
default mode network area of the brain, this fight, flight, freeze, automatic response, very emotional way that we sometimes respond to things in life. And they lead you, mindfulness-based practices really strengthen another region of the brain that's dedicated to um, higher order thinking, uh, wise judgment, discernment, pro-social behaviors like compassion, empathy. So you're, you're literally you know, going to the gym, if you will, for your brain. Instead of strengthening and changing the shape of your biceps or your abs, you can change the structure, the density, the connectivity between certain regions of the brain. Um, and you can exercise that area of the brain that is not as reactive, that is able to suspend judgment and be more objective and expand your perspective and respond in ways that are more helpful, mm-hmm. you know, and, and can serve you and can serve the situation. Right. Um, so it's really fascinating from a scientific perspective. It's really fascinating when you learn what goes on, the connectivity between the brain and stress chemicals that ooze and shoot through our bodies and the impact and the wear and tear that that has on the body. And that when you learn that you can really press the pause button and trip a whole different system, a whole different nervous system, you can trip in your body through certain mindfulness-based practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I can't emphasize that enough. And for people listening, like rewind and listen to that again. And because it really is, again, when I've learned about meditation and sitting quietly and doing yoga, and I've said it on this podcast before, especially with yoga, it was so hard for me to sit still and be present and be in the moment. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And I can't do that. But I have come to realize how powerful that is. Again, you can hear that on a couple of the podcasts, like with Ruth and with uh, Laura Nosek, the power of yoga and being present and being still. And very similarly, again, with mindfulness and with the movement therapy and the things that we're learning, it is, it is fascinating. And I want people to hear that it, is, it provides hope. It provides hope if you're sitting in a position like Ashley and I as a mother um, or perhaps a father or a sibling and you're, you know, you're sitting feeling hopeless, there is hope for you. And it does take some work. And I encourage you to, you know, you'll see in the show notes uh, that um, a way to get a hold of Ashley, if you want to, you know, she has lots of different courses and different things like that. I encourage you to to look into that because again, I, that's why I started this podcast. I want to provide hope for others because we know, Ashley and I know we've been sitting in that world of hurt and hopelessness and sadness and stress and all that stuff. And we also show up differently because of the work that we, that we're doing. And again, and the work that you're doing. And I love the fact that like so many, you actually have gone through this and you're like, you know what, I've learned this and I want to bring this to others to provide that hope, you know, for them as well. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really fulfilling and it's nourishing for me on so many levels. It's nourishing for me to continue my practice, but it's also nourishing for me to, um, to help others, um, just show up in a way that's, that's going to be more effective, um, and more productive for, for them, for their relationships and for their life. So, um, so yeah. 
That's yeah, that. that's that. Yeah. And so um, that's a good place to just kind of wrap this up. And again, I'm so thankful that um, so grateful that you came on today to share and grateful that we have gotten connected. Um, and I can continue to learn from you um, as I continue to heal and on this journey um, that we're taking together. We will put the information about your company. H- how did you come up with Insius? I mean, Insius is the name name of the company. Well, I worked with this phenomenal branding agency. I'll give her a little plug, Maria Grillo, the Grillo Group. And we went through kind of a whole uh, naming and identity session workshop together. But the name Insius is derived from a couple of different words uh, all put together. So in, uh, meaning to turn inward and to sort of... um, go inward in order to see the nature of things. And, and S-E is a nod towards the word see. So to turn inward to see, and then us, the U and the S are actually extracted from the word purpose, but all us as in a way that's also inclusive and not exclusive. So us, you know, turning inward to see the true nature uh, or our purpose for all of us. And that's really the name. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, any last w- words that you'd just kind of like to leave um, the listeners here as we finish up today? I, I guess I would say this. There is, there is always hope. There is, if you are struggling with an eating disorder yourself, if you are a family who has a loved one struggling with an eating disorder, um, just keep leaning into hope. Uh, you know, there are, there are many people that are on the other side of this illness um, and living their full, um, their full and, and, and best life. You know, my daughter is still traveling the journey. Uh, she's living in a very healthy way and, and independently um, going to school uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, but it's not fully behind her yet. And she does still struggle. And it's a daily, daily workload for her. But there is hope. There really is hope. So I would just you know, keep holding on to that hope and take care of, of you. And um, when you can take care of you, you can take care of other people a little, a little more with a little more ease. So, and I just thank you Moira for having me and for sharing stories. I think it can be so, I know it was so helpful for me when we first went to ERC and we started to meet other families that were going through what we were going through. There is, um, there is support in, um, in reaching out to other people. So I think mm-hmm. what you're doing is, is beautiful. And if I yeah. can answer anything for anybody else or have any, anybody wants to ask anything else, I'm happy to always chat. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. My husband, um, when we went to ERC, they do have that immersion, like a few day kind of family program. And my husband said at the end of those three or four days, he said, you know, the best part was lunch, <laughs> not just for the food, but the connection with the, with, uh, with the other parents. There was an awesome restaurant that we went to. It had this big, huge table that we sat on either side of it. We just all took, and he was able to finally connect with men who were going through a similar thing. And he said that was the best thing for me. So I couldn't agree. Yeah. You know, connection is just so critical for all of us in life. Uh, you know, for those that are struggling with eating disorders, you know, that are feeling disconnected, that connection to others and connection to love and connection to self is so important, but also for all of us as right. caregivers and healers. So. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Ashley, again. And um, thank you again, listeners, for coming. And again, if you need to uh, connect with or want to connect with Ashley, again, you'll see all the information in the show notes. I encourage you to reach out. Um, her her courses are you know, virtual, online, um, so it doesn't matter where you live. You can still connect there. And um, it's a great, great program, and I'm excited to continue to learn more. And again, thank you for coming back to listen. We are, as Ashley said, we are here to provide hope for you you that um, there is support, there is hope, and you don't have to feel alone in this journey. And um, keep coming back for more. And uh, please share this with your friends as well. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. Share it with others and make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. I've got a tribe over on Facebook, so head over there and search for Juggling the Chaos of Recovery Podcast Tribe. And do you know somebody who has a story, a story to share, a story of recovery and hope? Please let me know, as I'd love to feature them as a guest on one of these next upcoming podcasts. And perhaps you're looking for a community of like-minded, collaborative, and supportive people who cheer each other on as we strive to improve our lives. If that sounds like something you've been looking for, schedule some time with me. You'll find the links in the show notes. Let's talk and let me help you find your way. And I'm here to tell you that you're worth it.